Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. Brian what McCain? Brian Dean McCain. No, better than that. Uh, It's D, but it's not Dean. It's delirious. Delirious. Today I'm delirious. delirious. We're delirious because we have been doing so many really great interviews with candidates from around the Action 22 area who are running for office. Um, we're really proud to say that we are having long, authentic conversations with members of Action 22 who are running for office. So far, we have done how many? Uh, I think this puts us at around like 16 or 17. And we are nonpartisan. We are yes. passionately nonpartisan. So I think we're just about even number, yep. whether you're running for a, as a Democrat or a Republican. And so these conversations have been incredibly valuable to us, and we're hearing from uh, non-politicos that this has been really great for them because they've gotten to know the candidates on on a deeper level. So we appreciate um, Ty Winner, who is with us today. Um, Ty is running for the newly formed District uh, 47, yes? Yes, ma'am. 47, which is sort of centered around Trinidad, is the um, the population hub for that. So Ty, thanks for being with us. We've heard so many great things about you from somebody that we're a big fan of, and that's the Haases, Tony and Connie. Um, we, we love them so much. Of course, Tony is on our, is our vice chair, but he was really, you've got to have conversations with Ty. You've got to have conversations with Ty. And we're so glad that he has. So tell us a little bit about you. Let's start with you and that okay. area, because I think there's a lot of our listeners who, um, have some growing curiosity about Trinidad, which is one of the most, uh, historically interesting places, um, I think in the U S. Well, thank you. So, I'd like to thank Action 22 for having me and uh, be able to get our messages out. And um, I think it's important that people hear what we're about and what our platforms are. And you guys do a service by doing this. So thank you. Um, So a little bit about myself. I was born and raised uh, and still live on a fourth generation farm and ranch. And we were about eight miles north of Trinidad um, in this, they call it Al Moro is the area. Um, so, and then on the other side of my family, we're third generation funeral directors. So I have deep roots in that community and we've been there um, for quite a while. Um, been active and involved in our community. Um, I'm married. I've been married to my wife, Jennifer, for 20 years. And I have two daughters, Brooklyn and Skylar. Brooklyn's 14 and Skylar's seven. And it's one of the main reasons I'm running for this seat is, is I want them to grow up in a, you know, safe prosperous, good Colorado. And uh, it's a great area. I mean, Trinidad is a great area and the district, southeastern Colorado. Um, I've, I've put about 23,000 miles on traveling the district since I announced in December. And it's full of good salt of the earth people, um, good people, rural people, and you know, people that just want to be able to live their lives and not have so much government intervention in their <laughs> lives and the thing that come along with that. Because um, that's another reason I'm not running is I think that a lot of times uh, legislators that are elected in the Metroplex, when they pass law, they don't realize how it affects people outside of their vacuum. And so, you know, I've traveled the district over and over again. It's a nine county district. So it's Los Animas County. 
It's partial Huerfano, partial Pueblo, then it's Kiowa, Crowley, Bent, Backup, Prowers, and Otero. So it's a massive district and a lot of farm, a lot of ranch. But, you know, in the north end of Pueblo West, because it swings around in up by, like, the Cat's Poorhouse area. So, you know, there is some metro to the district, which we saw in redistricting. They made sure to attach a little bit of metro to all the rural districts. Um, but, no, so it, it's been an honor to travel this district and meet these people and listen to them and what they want to see in a representative. And it's been my honor to do it, and I look forward to uh, Election Day and getting elected and getting to the state capitol and working hard for that district. That echoes exactly what we've been saying constantly with Action 22, not just on the show, but since Action 22 is formed. You know, we're labeled as the political muscle of Southern Colorado, and part of that is that that vacuum chamber, like you set up in Denver, where there are laws and rules and legislation passed that has um, unintended consequences for us down here in Southern Colorado. Right. No, you're right. And that's one thing that, you know, Kimmy Lewis, she represented in House District 64. And that's one thing that I appreciated that she did is she brought legislators um, from the Metroplex to see how people in rural Colorado lived. And as I've traveled this district, I've told people I'm going to lean on you heavy from the corn growers to the cattlemen's. I'm like, we need to be a loud voice for rural Colorado. But part of that is is bringing them down here to see the way we live our lives and how those um things affect us. So, um, you know, I want to take some of that model that she did and I want to expand on it and I want to carry it forward. And, you know, I do want these people to do listening tours and sightseeing tours and, and see how we live our lives. And I, I hope it makes a difference in some of the decisions they make. And I hope they're able to relay that message to their constituents who push for some of these things. And, you know, they, they say that we're our, they're rural cousins, and sometimes, you know, it feels like we're the redheaded stepchild more <laughs> than the rural cousins. So, um, you know, if I hear this a lot in the district. If I wanted to live in Denver under those rules, I would be living in Denver under those rules, and I choose to live here because of the way of life we have. And those people are proud of their heritage. They're proud of their rural values. They're proud of their faith. They're proud of their family. And they want that preserved, and that's why they're staying there. So, I mean, that's been that's a huge motivator uh, for me. And you know, uh, thanks for acknowledging that because it is it is real. I think mm-hmm. people think those are flashpoint political talking points, and they're not. It is there is a real urban rural divide when it comes to some of these things. So we see that a lot. I think you, um, in introducing yourself, you um, said one of one of the things that I have found has been one of the bigger. Um, touch points on the difference. And that is um, almost everyone in the rural community who's an ag producer has another job. They have additional jobs. Um, And so the, the idea that, um, or that rural um, or ag producers in particular are a huge economic driver for the state. It's not just there. It's, it's um, everything else you do because you're so entrenched in these communities. You're doing more than one thing. That's right. And a lot of the reason that is, is is at one time a farm and ranch could could sustain a family, but with a lot of red tape and regulation being passed. And then when you look at right now, I mean, prime example, look at the cost of fuel. I mean, if you look at from literally farm to table, when you look at what it costs to get that field ready, to sow your seed into the field, by the time you take that crop out of the ground, then it goes to the cattle producer and he's paying the upcharge on all that fuel from the farmer, which the farmer has to do to get by because he's got to pass the fuel cost along. And then by the time you raise that cow and then you get it to market and then 
what's happening with the middleman now. I mean, you know, uh, you've got the producers are suffering and the consumers are paying more, but the big four are making more money, um, you know, when it comes to the cattle market. But, you know, it, it, it does affect these people. And what makes it hard about some of the legislation that's been passed is, is when you look at some of the oil and gas rigs that have put through, a lot of farmers and ranchers made money on royalties from the mineral rights they had on their property. And it's effectively slashed or killed that money-making process for them. So when you take that they're being attacked so many different ways on so many different sides, it makes it hard for a farm and ranch to sustain a family. So yes, people are having to go out and find other employment because they don't want to lose something that's been in the family for four or five generations. And when you look at what they talk about, some of the death taxes that they want to raise and capital gains and things like that, Farmers and ranchers and people that have had places for a long time, they're really scared that one day they're going to lose their place and they're not going to be able to keep it. So that's something we've even seen in my family. You know, my, my grandpa worried about it. My dad worries about it. And uh, it's unfortunate because, you know, these people are the true stewards of the land. And when you people don't realize what a family goes through when they live on a farm and a ranch, how everybody in the family sacrifices and, you know, um, it's just a tough thing. And then you throw in, you know, we're going to jump right into the water issue, you know, they talk about sustainability on the front range. Well, we all know what that means. That falls on the back of rural Colorado and agri-centered communities. And they try to separate that fact, but we're not buying it anymore. And that's one thing that's nice about this is everywhere I go, there's a lot of people that are in office or running for office that are literally looking at the front range and saying, you can't have the water in our agri-centered communities. Number one, food is a, it's, it's a national security issue. We saw that during the supply chain interruption. Um, secondly, we feed not only Colorado, but we feed America. And if you come to take our water, not only no, but hell no. Um, we need this to survive in these rural communities. So uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of things happening right now. And uh, it definitely does, back to what your original question was, it does affect the family dynamic and how things have had to change for people to keep generational farms and ranches in their family and going. So there's two things, and I think it's really important. We talk about water all the time, um, and but there there's so many layers to it. Um, there's portions of it. What is unique about the water um, issues that you face in in your district? Um, so, I mean, you know, the money that they that, that Senator Gardner, Gardner got put in for the conduit is great mm -hmm. because that was promised under President Kennedy, and it's nice to see that money being allocated and that push and that movement. But then you take counties uh, like Crowley County that was a buy-and-dry county, and right now all they have left is the private prison, which they're on, the private prisons are under attack in Crowley and Bent as well. Right. Um, I mean, but the water issues that we face is, is just the – the drought is huge. People don't realize what the drought has done to farmers and ranchers, not only when it comes to the water, but when it comes to mental health. That's another issue that mm -hmm. people don't realize we face in, in southern Colorado. But um, water is the lifeblood of rural Colorado. And I think that people need to do a better job of explaining to people that you need that water not only to sustain these economies in southeastern Colorado, but to feed the people of Colorado and the nation our water issues are really a lot of the same as the other issues that uh, water issues around everywhere. I mean, I think we need a, We have a storage issue. We need to find a way to find the funding. We need to build storage in Colorado. We send way too much water downstream. I mean, the water compacts. I mean, you know, we have to start holding states like California and Arizona accountable for their use of water. Um, you know, they can't expect to have nice green lawns in front of every house and, you know, water for their different type of recreation without understanding that water comes upstream and to get their water, it has to cut from others. So I think the main issue is, is just making sure that we're good with the water. And then people have to understand, you hear a lot of talk now of the people's water. Well, that water is owned by 
private property mm-hmm. rights, essentially. And I see that there's a shift. So there was a water conference they did on in Denver um, early in the spring. And you could either go in person or watch online. And I watched online. And you have a panel and you had three people up there and like a ranch lady. And she was in a constant bickering with the hosts of it because they kept saying the people's water, the people's water. And she's like, that water is owned by water shares privately through farmers and ranchers. And you see where they're trying to use language to distinguish this now yeah. and change the narrative. And we've seen this in other things in politics. So I think that rural Coloradans just need to be aware and they need to be on top of this game and they need to organize and they need to push back as hard as they can. And I think that's our job as legislators ours to take that voice to the state capitol and say, we've drawn the line and you need to figure some things out before you look at true growth. So one of the things that I have found um, that's been alarming to me, because you just described it, but the term actually in the Constitution um, is prior appropriations. That's the the private property, right? And Colorado is a not a prior uh, appropriation state, but it's the prior appropriations versus public trust. So she's talking about the people's people's water, people's water, people's water. They want to move it to um, public trust, and yeah, it's gone it, all the way. It sounds better as the people's water. That's well, no, the, of that's course, of it's course, like, it's it does. our water, Sarah. I know this is our water. I know it's and it's it's it is, but it's not. Um, and that's the part that's really alarming. But when I have asked the question and, and to the credit of some of the people that I've asked the question to, um, what do you think? What's better for Colorado prior appropriations or public trust of the majority of the people who are running for office right now have no idea what I just said to them, but you just described it beautifully. And that's the narrative that's happening right now is, uh, so are we going to ship our water? Does there need to be, does it need to be, um, all of the water savings that needs to happen because of a drought? Does that need to happen on the backs of ag or does that need to be, um, mitigated through, um, demand management? Yeah. I mean, you, you drive through a neighborhood in Springs or Denver and these, these there's these massive lawns and then they're saying you have to cut back water in rural Colorado <laughs> and you're like, you know, how does this work? Uh, no, I think that definitely there needs to be an awakening, and I think that there needs to be some real talks, and there needs to be some real education when it comes to this. And uh, unfortunately, the way it feels anymore in rural Colorado is we're the ones that have to do the educating. And you hear farmers and ranchers say all the time, now I have to literally go to Denver. I mean, we look at the Paws Act. This all came centered around the Paws Act. So yeah. they're like, we really have to go to Denver and explain to people that their eggs and grain come from southeastern Colorado and not King Supers? They're like, we really have to do this. So it feels like they're having to do double and triple duty. So now, so we can get people to kind of push back against some of this legislation, we have to go up and educate people where their food come, educate people about water and grow the food and use the water. So it, it it's at times it seems overwhelming. So I, I think that there has to be some give and take. And I think that there has to be some reality. And that's another reason I'm running is we're totally running. We're, we're losing truth, the word truth. Truth doesn't matter anymore. It's feelings over truth, and that just freaks me out. And I think that people need to hear the truth. And I think that some of these legislators, um, like I said, in the Metroplex, need to start being more truthful with themselves and more truthful with their constituents and explain these things that we're talking about, saying, okay, well, we have these agendas such as the Green New Deal and things like that that hurt oil and gas, hurt the, hurt water. We have some animal rights stuff that push it back against farming and ranching. But we need to sit down with them and explain, okay, there's these feeling things, but at the end of the day, there's these truthful things like you need to eat and you need to have gas to drive your car and heat your home. So we have to find a balance, and I think it needs to be less agenda and more of reality, and that's another reason I'm running, is we've got to get back to some semblance of what reality is. 
I feel like we've been talking about reality <laughs> all day. We just yeah. finished another um, uh, interview and he talked about reality quite a bit. Um, so let me ask you, and this is a personal question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want, um, but this, it just brought something up to me. Do you have, um, do you have water rights? You have water use rights? Yes, my family does. So we're, okay. we're not on a priority ditch, but we, we do have, we own, we do own water shares on our ditch. So this is why this is interesting mm-hmm. right now. There's only one legislator in Colorado that actually has water rights, owns water rights. And that is Cleve Simpson. So if, if you win, you would be number two, the second legislator. And we have ev- all the other legislators are making major decisions about this that don't even own water rights. So that's a really powerful thing. Yeah. And also um, being a producer, ag producer too, you know, back in the day, it was literally every um, rural rep and senator was generally an ag producer. And now it's not that, that's not the case anymore, unfortunately. No, it isn't. And that's one thing that was nice about redistricting is, is I think redistricting was fair. Um, I think that the commission was a great idea, and I'm glad that the people of Colorado decided to go that route instead of letting people draw the maps for themselves, and it did help um, Republicans. There's no doubt I'm going to say that, especially in the House seats. It's gonna, I think it's going to make it more fair um, representation at the state capitol, and I think that that's a good thing because when you look at the way the founders set up this nation, it was never sent for a one-party rule. I mean, things don't get done that way, and I think that if we can tighten the gap a little bit and not – to gain political ground, but for the semblance of reality and truth again. I think if we can bridge that gap when it comes to the House, when you look at committees, the committee assignments are a little bit different when it comes to the voting. So you're not going to have as much of a one-party rule as where they have to sit down and actually talk to you and work things out at the table again. And maybe we can get, you know, some more reaching across the aisle instead of corner, corner, and we've got this line drawn in the middle, which there are some things that each party isn't going to back down on when it comes to the tenets of what they believe in. But I think that there's a lot of place in the middle now. If we see more of a, that gap being closed with seats, you're going to have, which will benefit the public in the yeah. long run when those conversations have to be have other than just we're going to gavel whatever we want through because we know there's no opposition. Yeah, it's like, oh, now we have to listen to other guys. Like, let's go see what they have to say about this because we need a little bit more of their support. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's going to be a good thing. And like I said, not on a party line thing, but for the citizenry, because I was at a meeting one time and I was talking to a gentleman and his daughter, I think she was about 17 years old when I first was down in this community. And we were talking and she's like, yeah, politics seems to me like, you know, that scene in the movie where the parents are fighting and the kids hiding under the bed. It's like, you have one party on this side fighting, one party on this as a parents, and then the citizenry of the kid hiding under the bed going, no, 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 no. And um, to me, that stuck right. with me because here's this 17-year-old kid who's politically in tune, and when she gave me it, and I've used it everywhere I go, I'm like, you know, don't get me wrong. There are some values I'll never back down on, but at the end of the day, if we can't find the things that we do agree on and reach across the aisle, then what are we doing? We're not, we're not doing what that is, and that's representing the people. Another thing I say everywhere I go is, is, you know, I don't like the term elected leader because when the founding fathers, they did the greatest thing they did when they set up this form of government. The republic that we have, and let's make it clear, it's a republic and not a democracy. The constitutional republic we have in this country is the greatest form of government ever set by mankind. The founding documents are unbelievable. And representation is the yes. word. And I think we've got away from that. People say, well, if elected, what five bills are you going to run? And I'm like, hold on a second. It's what five bills 
these people want me to run, the constituents of yeah. southeastern Colorado. So I think that if you go in there like I'm going to with the mindset of as I'm elected to represent these people, I think that's another thing that we have to get back to is is it, it's quit looking at that singular person and represent the district the way it wants to be. And that's the model I've taken, and that's what I've campaigned on, and that's what I'm going to do if elected. Yeah, you represent everybody regardless of party. Re- regardless of party affiliation. Now, don't get me wrong. When when you're elected by a group, you're somewhat given somewhat of a mandate to represent them. So, you know, the mandate coming out of, you know, a house seat in Denver, they're going to represent their people a little bit more to that mandate, just like a mandate coming out of a more conservative district. I mean, it's going to give way more to that because of the makeup of the district. But at the end of the day, you're still representing independents and Democrats as well, and their concerns are valid, and they may not always agree with your your views but i think that in the places you can't give there's also places you can and i think Mm -hmm. it's trying to find that balance of the majority of the people in this district really want it this way but over here on this thing there's some leniency to do some things this way and i i think that you can have you can find a healthy balance in both i really think you can like the honey boy mapping (laughs) (laughs) so let me ask you twenty three thousand miles yeah. That you've done. Um, there's a saying that uh, you know a, a candidate um, by how they've developed over the um, over the uh, campaign. So, what has been something that you've uh, either been surprised to learn, or you were like you hadn't thought about it in that way before? Something that really made you think, "Yep, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing." Um. So, probably the, I guess the most unbelievable and gratifying experience about this has to do with fundraising. So mm-hmm. when you give a message and you have somebody come up and they're like, you know, this month was tough and this is the last five bucks I have left um, to help me out. Or, you know, I, I really don't have the money to be, be helping you out. But what you said really touched me and the message you, that you give is inspiring Um, that's pretty humbling. And it's also an awesome experience, you know, when you get back in the trucks. I've had a gentleman travel with me. His name's Jerry Peters. Um, and he's, he was the treasurer of our Republican party. And when I was the chairman, he helped me out a lot with that. So when I decided to run, he's like, I don't want you traveling those back roads alone. And we've had a lot of those conversations, you know, we'd get in the truck after and I'd be like, man, I I just can't believe you know, the way these people are getting behind me. Um, and, when people tell you that or they look at you and they say, you know, we, we've got faith you're going to be a true representative of the people and you're not in this for yourself. So the the humbling experience of the humanity that I felt. And then I guess another thing that is hearing everybody's stories mm-hmm. because everybody has a unique story, whether right. they're a farmer or a rancher, or a prison guard or a teacher or, I mean, a policeman, highway patrolman. So it's been really more of a listening tour than a campaign. Don't get me wrong. I get up and I speak, but my favorite part of it is just talking to the people after. And then also all the homemade food. (laughs) You know, I I probably put on like eight pounds because, you know, you go to some of these places and they're like, oh, you like that pecan pie? Have another piece. And they sit there and they watch you eat it to make sure they're like, you really like it. But it's been the people. The people have made this. And that's what's opened my eyes more than anything is I wanted to do this for the people. But until you get out there and you hear these stories and you have those feelings where people, they they look at you and really believe in you. And then they're willing to take their hard-earned money and get behind you because they believe in what you're saying and your message. That's been probably the best, most humbling, awesome experience about all of this. Um, Yeah. 
yeah, I've met a lot of good people. So outside of ag and water, we'll just put that aside. What's uh, one of the most important issues that are on people's minds when you talk to them? Okay, so if you don't mind, I'll break down the district. Uh, So basically crime. Crime, it doesn't matter if you're in Denver, Pueblo, or Walsh, Colorado. Crime, homelessness, and drugs are an issue everywhere. And it's talked about everywhere. I had a gentleman in Baca County tell me, yeah, I was driving home the other night 55 miles an hour and... This guy loaded on drugs was walking down the middle of the county road. I about mowed him over and he's like, he's like 15 miles from anywhere and he's just stumbling down the road. So, I mean, I think that, you know, everywhere I go, I tell people there's some things we definitely need to do with crime. I mean, we're number one in auto thefts. We're number one in recreational cocaine use. We're number one in porch pirates, bank robberies, uh, auto thefts per capita. I mean, number two in fentanyl deaths, and I think that that goes back to reality we were talking about in the first place. What we need to do is back the blue. We definitely need to back the blue. Um, This woke culture idea of defunding the police, it isn't working so well, Mm -hmm. and people want to feel safe in their communities. Then I think we need truth in sentencing. We definitely need some truth in sentencing. You know, there's an issue when people are sentenced in they're not serving their sentences or being punished for what they've done. And I think we need to make criminals criminals again. And that's one thing I tell people is when I get to the state Capitol, my voice is going to be pretty clear. If you commit a crime in Colorado, you should be punished for committing that crime. Agriculture is important. We talked about that. I mean, it's that double speak, you know, you're our country cousin, but we're going to have a meatless holiday and we're going to appoint Howland Kessler to the egg board who calls farmers and ranchers, lazy, nasty people who raise beef just so the wolves will eat their beef and bait them. (laughs) And then literally like a month after she says that and gets kicked off the board, she gets charged with animal cruelty because they're finding dead birds in a cage in a basement. But, you know, they don't trust the real stewards of the land to take care of animals. Um, You know, and then some of the speak that recently over the prairie dog issue, I don't know if you heard about that, where the governor's husband says, don't bite the hands that feed you, rule Colorado. And then, you know, the post gets erased. So, you know, standing for agriculture, the private property rights, water rights, that's another huge issue. Another issue that's up there with those is constitutional rights and personal freedoms. People feel like they were totally under attack during COVID. They shut down people's businesses. They kept people out of church. And I live in a God family country district. Um, and they were not happy with the way they were told they had to live their lives. Um, they were upset that their First Amendment right to practice their religion was attacked with the shutdowns. They were furious their businesses were shut down. They were furious that they were silenced for asking questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear that everywhere I go. It's like, you know, anytime we, we asked anything that was against the science with COVID, we were, you, you know, shut down by media, family, friends. It was like, don't say anything about it. You're wrong. Um, you know, they want to protect their Second Amendment. They're, they don't agree with the red flag bill, and a lot of them don't agree with, uh, I mean, you know, shall not be infringed is pretty clear um, in the Constitution. Um, you know, uh, the Fourth Amendment with the red flag bill, basically, you know, you're not innocent until proven guilty. It's 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 totally opposite of that. The presumption of is I can come in, take your stuff, and then find out if you're guilty, which they're not too hip on that. Mm-hmm. And then the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendment that have to do with uh, water rights, private property rights more than anything. And then after that, then you look at, I guess it would be parental rights and education. Mm-hmm. So... If you look at what the COVID shutdown did to kids, I mean, look at look at what's happened in the last two years to their education. I mean, our, we are failing our kids. 
we are failing our kids. That's all I have to say about that. And then parental rights. Uh, that's one thing that I preach everywhere I go. I'm like, parents know what's best for their children, not big government, when it, especially when it comes to education and it comes to their health care. I'm a proponent of school choice. I think there is nothing wrong with competition in education. Mm-hmm. I think competition drives excellence, and I think that if a parent can take their tax dollars from the state and the Fed and be able to get a voucher and put their kid in the best school, it's only going to cause the schools that are lagging to compete for that money um and i don't think there's a problem with that i mean sorry i wasn't i mean we all talked we're fairly close to the same age and i didn't come from the you know uh, everybody gets a trophy (laughs) (laughs) generation and i think we see that um so those are things i guess when you really talk about and then healthcare. i mean out in my district the va is looking at shutting a lot of clinics down um in the district and then making sure that we have good health care um a lot of elderly people in our district that, that can't travel. So that's also one of the things we talked about. So those are the things that I've been really uh, hitting on hard and uh, talking to people about. And it seems to be getting the most talk and fluidity in my district. Going to the VA clinic shutting down, I got to throw this in. So um, we've talked about it on the show before as part of the Air Commission recommendations, which got killed in the Senate because they just didn't approve the the commissions. But everybody thought that, oh, it's okay now. Like they're not going to shut them down. Here's the problem. That study comes up every two to four years. So it's going to come again, which you have to keep it fresh in people's minds and these veterans out there and be vocal to your federal delegation that when it does come up, because it will, and it'll probably be similar, if not the same, that um, we need to be loud about that for our veterans in these rural areas. That's right. I did some research on that. And the thing about it is, 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 you know, our veterans, like in Los Angeles County, were having to travel to Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, that's insanity. That's yeah. That's yeah. insanity. I had a friend of mine who ended up passing away of cancer, but he didn't get the treatments because he went down there and the first one almost killed him getting home, um, yeah. you know, driving back from Albuquerque. So, you know, you come to find out, oh, well, they'll give the county a van, you know, to transport them. Well, they give the van, but the driver is paid for by the county. The yep. insurance and the upkeep is paid for by the county, the gas, and then the liability comes on the county. So I really think what we need to push hard for is for our veterans to be able to use their facilities in their community because not only is it easier on them, it keeps that money in your community yeah. and employs people. So, you know, and then also try and work to work hard to recruit, you know, um, Good healthcare providers in our communities. I don't necessarily think you need the hand of government to do that. Yeah. You know, I think that there's foundations. You could probably start foundations where maybe you have a local kid, you know, who wants to go to school to be a doctor. And then the foundation helps him with the intent that he comes back or she comes back and serves in their community five to eight years. You know, I think that there's some private things you can do to help with that. But yeah, healthcare is definitely um, one of those issues for, you know, um, rural community, which rural communities are aging communities because most mm-hmm. kids have to leave. Young people have to leave to get jobs because, you know, their main streets are closing down and that's something else we need to work on is small business and health and business i think pushing broadband really hard i think denver and the state can let go of the coffers a little bit when it comes to job control i mean with broadband now all your offices you could have basically the office front in denver but you can apply you can share the wealth and employ people throughout the state when it with jobs that can be done through broadband and with zoom now i mean Mm -hmm. we use it for everything else so pushing for that making sure that a little bit of that as wealth is spread throughout the state when it comes to creating jobs in, in rural districts one thing that the state did do right, and I'm going to give the, the state a shout out, the DMVA, Department of Military and Veterans Affairs, state, not federal. Um, about a year ago, they decided to decentralize the DMVA. Um, up until that point, you had 12 VSOs, veteran service officers that worked for the state. They were all based out of Denver, worked in the same building, 
And the DMVA said, you know what, let's send them out to the rural areas. And so we have one here that covers uh, southern Colorado. He's based out of Pueblo. And it's not quite Trinidad, but at least it's closer to it. And they did that, and they created a map. And I think the states, you're going to see some other agencies actually look at that to, to kind of decentralize, say, hey, we could hire somebody in southern Colorado to do this job that we're paying somebody in Denver to do that they can't afford to live there. But you know what? They can afford to live in Trinidad. They can afford to live in Walsenburg, Pueblo, wherever. And I'm all for that. Yeah. I think that that's great. And we need to see more of it. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. So um, state people, if you're listening to this, look at the DMVA and what they're doing because it's brilliant and it's actually working. So we've got, what are we on, a 30-day countdown? Um, <sighs> by the time everybody gets this, it'll be closer to 27, 26 days. It, it'll be, it'll be uh, more white hair in my beard and probably yours too. Oh, so, yeah. so give it 30 days and like, this will be all white and uh, a little and I may be possibly bald. <laughs> yeah. yeah that too. Somebody asked me today, they were like, Hey, we'd like you to join our group. And I said, don't talk to me until November 10th. I need November off, November 9th yeah. off, but November 10th, you can talk to me. So we're, we're however many days out. It's not, I mean, it, the time is, is going fast. What's next for you? So I've got, Pueblo County Lincoln Day dinner this evening. And then I actually have some kids volleyball uh, this weekend. Uh, my kids, I've, you know, I've been away from a lot. So my daughter has a big tournament, but I have a, a few more things to do. So I have a few meetings throughout the district. And then uh, uh, Betty Blanco with the Tea Party Patriots um, out in the Lahana area, they're having a meet and greet for myself, uh, Rod Pelton, and then one of the local candidates is running. And then I'm going to have a little meet and greet down in Lamar on the day ballots drop. Uh, and then a little bit of door knocking in, in Pueblo. But, Sarah, I've put a ton of work in mm-hmm. meeting with these people. You know, I hit every big parade um, in every county. I've been over and over and over again. And uh, here's kind of the the strategy I'm going to take now is right now people are getting bombarded with mm-hmm. emails. Yeah. And I've kind of been listening and to the mailers. Okay, so I've kind of been listening to the people, which I'm not going to do a mailer for that reason. So, you know, what best than to actually listen, do the litmus test on the people. And I've kind of asked people and they're like, you know, we're tired of the phone calls. We're tired of the emails. We're tired of the mailers. So, you know what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to do my last few events and I'm just going to back off. Um, I think the amount of work I've done speaks for itself. I think I've really spent time relationship building. Like I said, I, you know, I was out in Holly for a parade. I've done a couple parades in Lamar. You know, every county I did their county fair and parade. And I've, you know, handed out probably close to four or 5,000 palm cards. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of texting, you know, shoot a couple texts out. But I, you know, I've worked really hard and it's not that I'm taking it easy. It's just when you've put 23,000 miles on, I mean, I don't know when you get to 20 some days out really what you could do. I think people by this point, if they haven't, you know, I think people have made up their minds for the majority of who they're going to vote for and how they're yeah. going to vote. And, uh, you know, you is you know, running for office, you don't want to push voters away either. So, you know, I think that I'll finish off these last couple events and, you know, send some texts out and I'll probably, you know, allow the work that I've done to, to speak for itself either way. Yeah. Speaking of that, if somebody wants to find out more about you, where do they go? Um, so you can go to my website. It's www.tyhd47.com. Um, please check that out. I have uh, my endorsements on there. I've been endorsed by uh, Senator Simpson. I've been endorsed by Representative Pelton, Representative Holtorf. I've been invo- endorsed by all three commissioners in Los Animas County. So uh, Republican Felix Lopez, Republican Tony Hass, and it was an honor to get uh, uh, 
Luis Lopez's mm-hmm. endorsement as a Democrat, showing that there's faith and there's that good faith that we can work across the aisle. Um, I've been endorsed by some farmers and ranchers from the area, um, minority leader, Senator Lundeen. Mm-hmm. So uh, you can check those out on there. You can see some pictures and then you can see my platform and, and you know, what I stand for. And then what I, I always tell people is I'm running for a job. This is a job interview. And, um, there's two things I'm happy about. First off is, is I've served on numerous boards and communities at the local and state level, from water board to fire district, school board, fair board. Uh, we could go through a litany of boards. I've served as the chairman of the uh, Los Angeles County Republican Party. I'm, I'm actually the sitting chair of the House District 64, served on the state committee, went through the leadership program of the Rockies, and I serve mm-hmm. on their advisory council. So you can kind of see my background. But one thing I'm also excited as is I do have a lot of experience, and I have my finger on the pulse of a lot of things in House District 64, but I'm also excited that I'm a new, fresh set of eyes without any predisposition of how things should be. People always say all the time, you know, other than all your board experience, uh, what other experience do you have? And I think that that's a benefit. I think more people want just everyday people to run for office and not have these predisposed ideas of, well, I was in this seat or I was in this seat and this is how things worked. I think sometimes it's good to have a fresh set of eyes and somebody with that new fresh eyes and energy and uh you know please check that out see what i've done and you know get behind me i'm gonna work hard i've got the fire and the energy that it's going to take to represent such a large district and uh i'm just looking forward to getting elected and then getting up there in january and doing the people's work we love it and clearly you have the energy to do that um so we're also going to have you at the um at action 22's annual meeting on the 21st and 22nd so um i i feel like i say it all the time but just so you know at, um annual meeting 21st 22nd um it's going to be um a typical action 22 event which will be totally unexpected for you um even if you usually come to action 22 events we're doing um all new f- and fun stuff plus a hockey game afterwards and a hockey game well, after on Friday. Don't leave after the hockey game. We still have another day of the annual meeting. We have another day of the annual meeting. There'll be energy. There'll be um, all kinds of um, interesting stuff. And we're doing awards. We haven't done awards in five years. Yeah. Um, so we'll be doing awards this year as well. So we want you to be a part of that. Disclaimer. Action 22 does not endorse political candidates during an election season, but we do support our members. So if you're a member of Action 22 and you're running for office, email us at show at action22.org and come on our show and um, lay your platform out. You can speak as long as you want. Hey, Chad Borthman, I know you're listening. We have yet another ag producer um, here that is has thrown their hat into the ring, um, and I know how much you appreciate that. Um, and he has... If you notice, um, if you're watching, he has a full, all the facial hair, not just the mustache, because he was raised right. (laughs) All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. 
Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org.